before we begin our study, yeah, let's, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. And we can say, Amen. Well, Purim is coming up. Officially, it starts on Monday evening. It goes until sundown the following day, Tuesday. And it's a time of remembering what's described in the book of Esther. And just to summarize it, the Jews were in Persia. And there was this time when a high government official wanted to see the Jewish people destroyed, annihilated. And it looked as if he were going to have his way. And the Jewish people who had been uh, dispersed into Persia would be destroyed. However, there was a young lady whose Jewish identity was hidden, and she happened to be married to the king. Her name was Esther. Yay! Yay. Go Esther. And she was in a position to influence the king for good. And because of her faithfulness, the Jewish people were rescued. There are a lot of other details to it. How many of you are pretty familiar with the story of Purim? Good? Because some of the things we'll talk about today do require a little bit of familiarity in order to get the most out of it. But I'd, I'll do my best to connect some uh, interesting ideas, I think, and important ideas that are stirring up during this Purim season that may be useful to us. But I, I've decided to call this message Purim Recipes. And it's not so much about the food that you would make at Purim or eat at Purim, though Jewish people love to make special foods at every holiday. Isn't that correct? Yeah. The only holiday we don't have special foods for is Yom Kippur while we're fasting. And then after, all food is good. But we have special foods, and... I think there's a connection between recipes for food and recipes for the good life. Because if, if you want to make good food and you have a good recipe, then you know what the ingredients should be and how much. And you know how to prepare in advance and get everything ready. And then you know step by step the directions you're supposed to follow. And so you can produce and then even serve something that's delicious. The same is true with life. It, it requires some components, some ingredients. It requires some preparation. The good life requires some step-by-step -step instructions. And it's useful, I think, to keep these two things in mind. Good food and the good life. And I can tell you I'm interested in both, good food and good life. How many share those two interests? 
But honestly, I've been interested in good food longer than I have the good life. Um, I like to eat good food. I like to shop for the ingredients. I like to go to foreign countries and go to their markets and go to the grocery store. It's enjoyable to me. I like to cook good food. I like to serve good food. How, how many of you share all of those? A handful of you share all of those interests. How many just like to eat good food? <laughs> How many get confused sometimes and think good food just means a lot of food? Many of my best memories from growing up are connected to food. And there were two that came to my mind that I want to share with you that, that will sort of prepare for our study today, if, if you can imagine this. And the first one has to do with cherry pie. And my mother taught me how to make cherry pie, uh, which was my favorite pie. And how many share that love of cherry, cherry pie? Okay, not so many. It's, it's like... A, how many prefer apple pie or chocolate cream pie or, or as the song says, I like pie, I like cake, I like everything you make. <laughs> I remember standing at the stove with my mother stirring canned cherries in a saucepan that was on medium-low heat because it needed to simmer, and then adding cornstarch to thicken it. But the cornstarch had to be mixed with a little water first. How many of you cook and know that? Okay, for the rest of you, you'll learn something today. It's actually a very important step, and, and when I Googled cornstarch slurry, the first search result said it perfectly and clearly. Cornstarch is great for thickening sauces and soups and pie filling, but if you try to add it directly, you will get lumps. Yes you need to make something called a slurry. A slurry is simply, in this case, the cornstarch mixed with cold water, and then you add that slowly into the hot liquid of the um, sour cherries. So you've got to do that. Otherwise, if you don't know to do that, you put the cornstarch into the pan, and you know what? You get these really gross lumps that no one will want to eat, and they will not consider your pie to be delectable. So I learned as a boy, and I still remember that you need to, you need to make the slurry. And I also learned from my mother, sour cherries, not sweet cherries, make the best cherry pie. 
Ingredients are important, preparation's important, step-by-step instructions are important. If you want good results, all those details are important. The French have a term for this and um, quality uh, restaurateurs know about it, mise en place, it's a culinary process in which all the ingredients are prepared and they're organized before you start cooking. Mise en place uh, means putting everything in place. And so cherry pie filling, I have fond memories of that and of my mother's cherry pie, of shopping with her and cooking with her. But I have to admit something, she made wonderful pie crust. And that was something I still cannot do. And my wife, my daughter, my granddaughter, they're quite accomplished in making delicious pie crusts. In fact, our, our daughter and granddaughter are both professional bakers now, so they stand on their own as quite competent. But my mother would always make a lattice-top crust. How many of you know what lattice is? Not lettuce, lattice. She would make that for cherry pies, but it took more patience and more coordination and more attention to detail than I was ever able to muster. So I was her helper for the filling, but I wasn't very good at the other parts, and to be honest, I'm still not. But I can make blintzes that also use that cherry pie filling or a cheese filling, delicious blintzes, and other things. So that's a vivid memory that I have. And, and you might say, why, why are you talking about all this? We came to learn the scriptures. <laughs> but if you read the Torah portion from the beginning today, you'll, you'll notice that there are all these little details, the things that must be done just so, and in this order and this way and not some other way, because the good life, the faithful life, includes lots of details. And so if you don't like details, if you're one of those people, the scriptures may be difficult for you. It's useful to pay attention to the details. Well, I have one more memory on food that, that I'm going to tell you about. It's a vivid memory. I don't know why it came back to uh, my mind the other day, but... It was about making sandwiches for my sister's school lunches. Brown paper bag lunches. How many remember those? How many still have brown paper bags in your home? You gotta be kidding. How many know what a brown paper bag is? And I'm not talking about the kind you use for a uh, old Milwaukee or something brown paper bag lunches, and I remember how my oldest, oldest sister, Karen, liked her sandwiches. And I volunteered to make these sandwiches for them, which I did uh, consistently. This is what she liked, and I'm going to tell you the ingredients because I remember it vividly. Soft white bread. That's something I don't buy anymore. And she loved plum rose Danish ham. It comes very thinly sliced, 
Plumrose Danish ham. I remember the brand. That's another thing that you won't find in my kitchen <laughs> anymore. And then she liked thinly spread Hellman's mayonnaise. It had to be Hellman's. How many know what I'm talking about when I say Hellman's mayonnaise? Okay, okay, you know. And then one more ingredient, iceberg lettuce that had to be thinly shredded. That's what I discovered, not just leaves of the iceberg lettuce. I started with that, but my sister Karen really liked it better when I shredded, I thinly sliced those lettuce leaves and put that on, and that made her sandwich. And she enjoyed eating that, and I haven't made one of those for her in decades, as you can imagine, but I remember, I remember what she liked because, uh, oh, one more detail. She liked the sandwich cut on the diagonal. How many share that? You can't eat a sandwich if it's not cut on the diagonal. <laughs> All those details are in my memory because I made them so many times, but I paid attention to what she liked because I was trying to make it the way she wanted it. And that's a key to service. And I've been thinking about such details because at, at Purim, we're remembering how God likes things. And we have to understand some history and how things can go wrong when you ignore the details about what God likes and what he instructs us to do. You won't understand life. You won't even understand Purim if you don't understand that God likes certain things certain ways. So I've been thinking about all of that. And when I was reading the book of Esther again this year, the story of Purim, of course, is in that book. And three times there's a detail that caught my attention. It says this, that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, let me just set some context. It mentions these three times that the Jews did not take plunder from their enemies who had planned to destroy them, even though they had permission from the king to plunder their enemies. To plunder means to um, take the property and the spoils of war, if you will, that go to the victor, to take the wealth that had been uh, owned by the enemies who wanted to destroy the Jewish people. But in Esther 9, verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16, these three times, it specifically mentions that the Jewish people did not lay their hands on the plunder. And I thought, that's interesting that it repeats it because the repetition three times is meant to reflect not poor editing, but emphasis, something that we should pay attention to and ask the question, why is this important? Now, if you don't know why it's important and you think, ah, they're just being repetitive, then you're missing the way much of uh, important ideas are communicated in the scriptures through repetition. And repetition is deliberate so that it gets our attention. 
and we have to pay attention. Paying attention means looking into it and finding out what's this all about. So you might ask the question, why is it important? And it's a great question. And the answer actually has two parts. And the first is in the book of Esther, chapter 9, verse 16. I'll read it to you, but if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. It says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and to rid themselves of their enemies and to kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So to understand that verse, you have to understand that, that Haman had organized the annihilation of the Jewish people. And tens of thousands of violent anti-Semites in Persia were ready to join together to destroy the Jews. And yet, God was at work. And the Jews were able to defend themselves but this scripture makes something clear. What was the motivation that was stirring in the Jewish people? It was self-defense. That was it. And what was the action that they took? It was self-defense. And it wasn't the covetous desire for their enemy's property. It wasn't a scheme to get someone else's stuff. In fact, they took their hands off of that and said, even though we have a legal right that the king has granted the victors, granted the Jewish people in defending themselves, even though we have that right, we're not taking any of their stuff because that's not why we're fighting. We're fighting to defend ourselves. Only that. It's an interesting detail. But that's only the first part of the answer. Now, the second part of the answer requires some background that is actually found in an extra Torah reading from Deuteronomy for this weekend and the Haftorah portion from 1 Samuel. So bear with me so that you can be familiar with this. Deuteronomy 25 Verses 17 through 19 says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the road as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you by the road, attacked those in the rear, those who were exhausted and straggling behind when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear the Lord, or he had no fear of the Lord. And that means two things. He didn't fear God himself, and he had no uh, common moral boundaries or ethics. It means both. Therefore, when Adonai your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance to possess, you are to blot out all memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. So that's a serious statement in Deuteronomy, and it's a statement to the Jewish people that, that the Amalekites had done such evil that um, that evil needed to be remembered. And then the Haftorah portion is in 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. And it goes for a few verses. 
Here is what Adonai Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts, says. I remember what Amalek did to Israel, how they fought against Israel when they were coming up from Egypt. So that's pointing back to what we just read. And then going to verse 9, and I apologize that we're having to... Um, like condense some of these details, but in order to look carefully at this, we, we can't look at everything else. So really, if you have no familiarity with the story, it may be difficult to fill in some of the details. But verse 9 begins by mentioning uh, King Saul, the first king of Israel, Shaul. And he was instructed to, um, to fight the Amalekites and their king Agag, and to not plunder them after the victory. So in verse 9 it says, Shaul, Saul, King Saul, and the people after the battle spared Agag, this is the king, along with the best of the sheep and cattle, even the second best, also the lambs, and everything that was good. They weren't inclined to destroy these things, but everything that was worthless or weak, they completely destroyed. So they only destroyed the things that they considered useless to them, and they kept the plunder. And then going to verse 19, they're confronted by the prophet Samuel, who says, why did you seize the spoil, or why did you take the plunder? Instead of paying attention to what the Lord said, because from the Lord's viewpoint, you've done an evil thing. So the king of Israel is being confronted by the prophet of Israel and said, why are you doing this? You were told not to do this. In verse 20, Saul said to the prophet Samuel, I paid attention to what the Lord said. I did. So now we see that that. Samuel is confronting Saul, and Saul is defending himself and saying, I did what I was supposed to do. But it's actually a misleading statement. It's not true, and we'll find that in just a minute. Saul says, I carried out the mission that the Lord sent me on. I brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed Amalek. So this is his defense. I did it. I was faithful. I did it all. And then verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil, the best of the sheep and the cattle set aside for destruction, but that's because they wanted to sacrifice those things to the Lord. That's why they did it. They had good motives. Verse 22, Samuel, the prophet Samuel says, does the Lord take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifice as he does in obedience to what he tells you? And then he makes this incredible statement to Saul. For sure, obedience is better than sacrifice. And heeding the commands and the orders is better than the fat of rams. Verse 23, because rebellion, your rebellion is like the sin of sorcery or witchcraft. 
and your stubbornness is like the crime of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Now, how many know that the Lord is patient? He's been patient with you. How many have experienced his long-suffering? How many have experienced his compassion and his willingness to give you yet one more chance? So you know from experience, and it was true then, it's true now, that for God to get to the point where he says, you've crossed the line, no more chances. You really have to go pretty far. That's what happened. And that's what Samuel is saying. He's saying to Saul, you ignored what God said, and it's become like witchcraft and idolatry. The Lord recognizes that you've rejected his authority in your life, and he's rejecting you to the position of authority that he gave you. And later the Lord says, I regret having made Saul king. Whew. Can you imagine how far you have to go to stir up God's regret towards yourself? How many have experienced his compassion when you regret things you've done? When you've done it again and again? And yet, you bring sincerity, and, and the Lord receives you because you're sincere. So, in verse 24, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the order of Adonai and your words, too, because I was afraid of the people, and I listened to what they said. Now please pardon my sin and come back with me so that I can worship the Lord. So we see that Saul has regrets, but he still doesn't have repentance. His heart hasn't really changed. He just regrets getting caught. It was too late. Too late. So this episode that we just read about with Saul and the Amalekites and Agog is very important background because Saul gave into temptation and the wrong motivations. It ruined everything, not just for him, but for generations. Something continued. And when we read in the book of Esther, who is Haman? And we find out he is descended from the Amalekites and he's one of... Agog's descendants, as are his sons. And so we see that paying attention to details is really important, but it must come from the heart. Because if you don't get the details right and your heart is right, you'll work to get it right. But if you don't get the details right and you don't care, you will ruin things. Ruin it. And it's as simple as not caring about making cornstarch slurry because you just don't care. 
But if you want to make something good, do it right. It's that simple. Another detail. The good life, the life of faith, requires human effort together with God's grace. And when we read in the book of Esther uh, about the story, we realize that Esther had to do her part. And that included getting her motivations and her attitudes right. And it raised the question, what was her life all about? And there was this moment when she recognized the threat of Haman. And she realized that she felt that threat, but she thought if she could hide herself and her Jewishness, then she would be safe. That was a wrong motivation. She was tempted and she was confused. And you know what it took? It took her uncle, Mordechai, giving her instructions for her to sort it all out to get her attitude and her motivations right. And here's the good news. She was open to instruction. She was open to correction. And when Mordechai said to her, don't think that you can get away. Don't think you'll be saved. God will raise up salvation some other way if you don't do it, but you won't be spared. It was a hard word. But here's the good news. She listened to Mordechai instead of to her heart. I used to tell people, you should do what's in your heart. And then I found out I was telling people to do some stuff that was terrible because what was in their heart was terrible. We all have some terrible motivations sometimes. Isn't it true? And so you don't always want to do what's in your heart. You want to do what's in your heart that's good. Not just because it's in your heart, because the heart can mislead you. And it took Mordechai talking straight to Esther to say, get your heart right, get your attitude right. And to Esther's credit, she was open and she was responsive. And because of that, she committed to do her part, and then she fulfilled her commitment. And so she asked the Jews of Sushan to do their part, and they fasted and they prayed for her. She accepted the challenge before her, and she knew if she succeeded, it would be good. And if she failed, it would cost her her life. But she said, if I perish, I perish. So... Everyone did their parts, and they trusted that God would do his part. And that leads me to the next detail that caught my attention. It's the part of the story that I call the hafuch of Purim. Hafuch is one of my favorite words. How many of you know that about me? Yeah. Hafuch is a Hebrew word that means upside down. It also means overturn. And various forms of the word are used several times in the book of Esther to describe what God actually did because it's what God alone can do. Only God can turn things upside down in order to make them right side up. He can overturn evil plans. That's why we can say that in Messiah, God can cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So in Esther chapter 9, verse 1, I'm going to mention a couple of occasions where this hafuch happens. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower the Jews. And here's one translation. But now the tables were turned, 
and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Another translation says, yeah, but their plan was overturned and the Jews overpowered those who hated them. Different versions of, the, of that, all trying to translate this hafuch idea. Um, a different form of the word is used, but it's just still hafuch. Um, it, it means that things happen the other way around or the exact opposite happened because God overturned the evil plans. He overturned, he turned the tables on Haman. <laughs> right, let's say Haman, God overturned the tables. Okay, good, good. So God can overturn things. Patriarch Joseph understood that when he said to his brothers, you meant this for evil, God turned it to good. King David, who had his own problems with Saul before David was king, in Psalm 57, he wrote this uh, lament, they spread a net for my feet, my soul was despondent, they, meaning Saul, and in his men dug a pit before me, but they themselves have fallen into it. And so the evil plans were overturned, and those who had dug the pit fell into it. And so let's remember this, Mishpacha, that God can rescue us. He can overturn evil plans and actions, and we can depend on God. And we can let God depend on us. We can do our part. He'll do his part. And that way, the grace of God and human effort work together correctly. Now, final detail is this. And it's sort of like after you've fixed the food, you serve it, and what do you wait for after you've served it to people? Do they eat it? Yeah. Number one. And number two, do they enjoy it? Right. I've noticed some people, when they're eating delicious food, become vocal. And they make sounds, you know, like, mmm. Sometimes it's involuntary. How many of you have noticed this about people when you're serving them food they really like? It's like, mmm. Or they go, this is good. They don't even recognize they're doing it. They're just vocalizing their enjoyment. Or you can see in their eyes, mmm, delicious. Or you hear them go, eh. <laughs> and that's all it takes. Eh. So Purim teaches us that after the victory, what are we supposed to do? Rejoice. We are to have joy. You can read about that in Esther chapter 9. I'm not going to go into all of it um, because there's just not time today because of the other things we did. But there's an instruction. There's an instruction that says that we're to celebrate this time because the sorrow was overturned and became joy. And the mourning, the weeping of an, of. of Fear and anticipation of being annihilated, that was overturned and it became a holiday. 
And so we're instructed through this that, that we should take notice of what God does and then reframe our point of view about the trauma and the disaster that we were facing. And we reframe it this way, in light of how it actually turned out, we have joy. So it's not only the threat, it's not only the fear, it's not only the danger, it's not only the, the despondency, It's the way we think about it after everything works out. And we're taught, in light of it working out for good, remember that. Make it a time of rejoicing. And so at Purim, what's our custom? We rejoice. And let me ask you a question. Do you think there are still anti-Semites in the world? Oh, yeah. And do you think there are still people who would like to see the Jews destroyed? Yeah. Yeah, so they're not gone. But what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to be strong, defend ourselves as necessary, and trust in God who can overturn things that are meant for evil. And when he overturns them, you know what we should do? We rejoice. So how do we rejoice? One of the ways we rejoice is we make good food. <laughs> I'm serious. Don't get me wrong. Don't take this lightly. That's one of the things that the Bible teaches us, the Scripture teaches us, that when you have a victory, you can have a celebration with God that includes food, good food, and he will be glad with you. There was a time when the Jews rediscovered Sukkot, and they felt such regret, we haven't been doing this. You know, how low we've fallen, and then... The word of the Lord came to them. Don't weep. Don't mourn. Don't be sad. This is a happy day. Now, some people are just, by their personality, people who prefer to feel bad. Can I say it that way? I could whisper it if you don't want to hear it. They prefer to feel bad. They're just more comfortable with the bad news than the good news. And so I want to speak to all of you who have that personality type that's like that and just tell you that even at Purim, you have to put that aside and celebrate and rejoice and be glad. And when you see something good, try to put it aside. And when something turns out okay, that was going to be a disaster, take notice of it and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It's better than I thought. There are times when you don't want to get the information, you don't want to get the news, you don't want to get the report because you think it's going to be bad. And maybe it is. But then, things work out anyway. And you survive. I've been through this. I know what I'm talking about at many different levels. 
And I've been in this condition, and you have too, probably, where you've gotten bad news that can't be taken away, but you know what? You survived. You're still alive. Anybody still alive in here? <laughs> Congratulations, happy Purim, you're still alive. Anybody faced people who hated you and wanted you to fall into a pit, and you didn't? Hallelujah. He plucked your feet out of the net. Yeah. Be glad. Be glad. Stir yourself up to be glad. And you might say, oh, that's too emotional. Of course. That's what I'm talking about. Let your emotions catch up with the reality. And that's enough. So I'll stop. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate your victories and that we can recognize that you overturn our enemies and you overturn life's adversities and you overturn our adversaries and you bring good to us who love you and are called according to your purposes. Thank you for your goodness in Yeshua's name. Amen. <laughs> I have an Apple Watch, and when I, whatever, I hit the podium, it thought I fell. <laughs> and it has this feature, like, emergency call about to begin, are you okay? It's like, I'm okay. <laughs> I didn't fall. It wants details. It's like, you want, I didn't even know it cared that much about me. Are you okay? I'm fine. I'm good. Let it be true for you too. Okay? So we're going to go next door. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your hearts. Thank you for your tenacity. Thank you for your cheerfulness. Thank you for your good service and your consistency. All of those things are important to us and to the Lord. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. If you don't mind standing, we're going to close and we're going to thank the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom, everyone.